It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching, and thanks for continuing to listen. As we recorded our first 12 interviews with preachers, I'd hear back from listeners commenting on portions of those interviews that they found particularly interesting, insightful, helpful. And what I did was save these comments, and we've stitched together a sort of greatest hits, very special episode with snippets from the first 12 interviews, those moments during those conversations that both our listeners and myself and Neil, our editor, felt were of particular interest and worth preserving and returning to. So that's what we're going to do in this episode is listen to some of the best moments from our first 12 episodes. We begin with some commentary from William Willimon on how preachers ought to run to the strangest parts of their scripture lessons. I do think uh, preachers, we preachers, probably try too hard uh, to uh, soften the interpretive dissonance uh, between the biblical text and our context. Or we, uh, you, you can watch us preachers. You know, we will we'll read some perfectly wild biblical text. And then we'll get up in the pulpit and say things like, uh, hey, he didn't mean to hate your mother. Uh, Here's what he really meant uh, if he'd had the benefit of a seminary education. He meant to, uh, say, put the old lady in proper perspective. Or he didn't mean give away everything you have to the poor because that would be irresponsible. And in a a kind of uh, a blaspheming, we sort of say, uh, uh, I'm sure you thought there was a, a sort of dissonance between you and Jesus, but I luckily have a gift for reinterpreting Jesus and the Gospels and their truth uh, in such a way that you will be able to say, oh, good, I, I, that's what I've always thought. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that, that's what I've always thought. So the preacher's job or our misunderstanding of the preacher's job is to to be the the one who stands in the gap between... Yeah. The intensity of scripture yeah. and the discomfort that, that a parishioner or a congregation might feel, right? Yeah. So we make it all, and, and we I smooth think, it out. As I was taught in seminary, it was sort of like uh, uh, the preacher stands with one foot in the ancient world of scripture and another foot in the contemporary world, which as I remember Martin Marty said is a recipe for a hernia. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the the... That, that I thought I was the one to narrow the gap between us and God uh, in my sermon to bring God near. Well, I'm kind of thinking, you know, that's God's business uh, to bring God near to us. Um, my business sometimes is to open up that gap. Mary Ludy had some strong words about moralizing from the pulpit in the way that the Christian right is certainly not the only party guilty of participating in what she regards as an absolutely infantilizing practice. 
What um, is it about moralizing from the pulpit that, that makes you rear back? Well, it, because, first of all, it conditions the reading of the text in a way that I think is it, it's poverty of, of, of reading, a poverty of reading. But secondly, it, it, it places all the responsibility, um, it, it places a kind of responsibility on the hearer that I think is infantilizing. You know, um, it, my own sense of it is that, that, that the preacher um, ought to open a text in such a way that um, the hearer is, is, is left to make big decisions and to chew on things or to be inspired or to be cared for in ways that... Um, that he or she um, needs to, wants to, but if you're told that the interpretation of the text is this big moral imperative, um, and you can't, for whatever reason, see yourself in it, or you can't live up to it, or you, I think it's just undermining. So when you when you hear moralizing preaching in the left-leaning mainline church... That's pretty much all I hear these days. Does it tend to be more along political lines, or how how is that different? I assume yeah, it's different it's, from the moralizing you heard as a child. Yes, because the moralizing I heard as a child was about specific personal behaviors, and a lot of it was lodged in um, areas like honesty, integrity, purity, you know, sexual behaviors, that sort of thing. Um, in in the United Church of Christ and in other liberal um, con- uh, traditions, I I do hear a lot of it's the, it's social justice. And God knows I'm not against that. I mean, I mean, I'm, God knows I'm not against it. But I find that it, um, that the should that come out of that kind of preaching um, really do seem to imply that the central task of a life of faith is to hold certain positions and do certain actions around certain causes or issues. And, um, and you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. So... That, so it's all of it implies a kind of judgment on you, which is, I find, demoralizing. And, I, you know, a little bit of moralizing preaching every now and then, I guess, is great. And, but people think they're being prophetic when they're moralizing. And I think that there's a difference. Yeah. And I think, you know, authentic prophetic preaching for me is, is something that raises me up and gives me a vision and a horizon and a hope and stirs a sense of urgency in me. It's an active result. And I find moralizing to be a deflating, um, uh, I shrink back, I do, I shrink back from it. Um, And I feel disconnected to others as a result. I look around and think, well, they must, you know, maybe they do it. I don't, I I don't know. How do you do this? It, It feels as if it leaves me no place to stand. Here are two separate bits from a conversation with Claudio Carvalho. In the first, Claudio talks about how he was seen or not seen by America when he first came here as a missionary. And in the second bit, he speaks about how the preacher's location, the spot out of which one is preaching and preparing sermons, completely determines the end result. You know, your gestures and your eyes and you say yes to what you have no idea what you're saying yes to. And so for me to be able to start um, speaking uh, publicly and, and, and preaching. So were you preaching in English in 
in that church that you were starting? No, it in was Fall it was Portuguese all okay. the time. Yeah, yeah, it was Portuguese. Uh, but you did start speaking, sometimes in preaching Spanish, in English also elsewhere, right? After yes, because then I would have to visit the churches who were, who, uh, oh, were uh, supporting and, us, just yeah. to raise money, and so I'd have to go. You just said to be in a new country is to be a baby, mm-hmm. to be learning the language. My wife is a psychotherapist, and she was telling me about Donald Winnicott. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with yeah. his work. but yeah, yeah. So Winnicott says that, if I understand it, in infancy, the baby does not recognize herself as independent of the mother and is actually coming to self-understanding by the expression on the mother's face. So when the mother looks accepting or happy, the baby understands itself as accepted or happy or as the world as safe. So to carry the metaphor forward, in your infancy in America, how were you seen? Did you feel, did the church see you well? Man, you, that's wonderful. That's a fantastic question. It's so loaded too because then, oh yeah. Yes, I, I was coming to terms with a recognition of, of a mother who was not my mother, who I had a hard time understanding as my mother, who I had a hard time even accepting as this place, as my place. And, and, and seeing the, the painful experiences of my people, mostly undocumented people, uh, 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 living in this country and going through so much. Uh, 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 so it was, it, was, it was very hard to recognize how do I recognize myself in, in somebody else's land and somebody else's place and somebody else's language? So it's always wrestling. So Gloria Anzaldúa uh, talks about borderlands. So it was much later that I realized that I've been always uh, 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 within borderlands, trying to figure out who I am by way of looking at that which is not mine, and to people who are not mine, uh, to situations and symbols and culture that are not mine. And, and so it's, it, it, it stretched me in, in, in many ways. So all this longing for, for, for something that I that I have lost and I don't know what it is. But then I realized that in this whole process of me being here, uh, several things happened. And then I, I, I realized that I do not, where do I belong? Uh, I don't belong here fully, but I don't belong back to Brazil fully either. You were changed by I leaving. was, yes. And, and, and now where do I belong? So it was always this this living in exile. And, 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 and I, even though I, I have all of the gifts of having documents and all of that, which is very different from my own people uh, uh, and a very different experience. But then I realized that even growing up in Brazil, I was growing up with a face of, of, of a mother and then talking about a country that has uh, hidden the face of, of my true mothers, so to speak, which was the, 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 the First Nations, mm-hmm. was uh, um, a part of me that is, that is black, that is, that is being erased because of racism. So it's very different when you are preparing your sermon from your office or you are preparing your sermon from uh, a dumpster. If, if you have homeless people around you, you're going to preach something else. If you're doing your book of worship and you're praying from a nice hotel with a group of people, your prayer will be one. 
if you're in a refugee camp your prayer would be something totally else so when when i'm preaching i'm always trying to bring people to those places of 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 despair those places where it's hard to live do you find when you <clears throat> preach to wealthy liberal congregations intellectually they know this already mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so is it a matter of of shining a light on something of awakening people of reminding them <sighs> it's pretty much a class struggle man and i i'm not i don't know what to to do actually to <clears throat> because they do know they're smart people But it is how we, what we have done to the gospel so that we can stay where we are. In my very first interview, I spoke with Shannon Kirshner about the challenge of starting in a new pulpit and also about how tough it can be when one's own, the preacher's own theological perspective or convictions are at some sort of variance with a congregation's expectations or own traditions. So what I've found over the years is preaching to congregations that are accustomed to that, we're going to discern revelation from the broader culture and then look for where it where Jesus can be fit to correspond to it, right? Or where scripture can. Um, It's jarring to them to begin with what you're describing, to be so scripturally rooted. And the sermons of yours that I read and listened to, you definitely hew very closely to the, to the, the pericope or the lectionary Mm -hmm. assignment. So have you found that, is that accurate An accurate assessment, like resistance from your congregations or, um, maybe this is just a UCC phenomenon. What do you think? Um, so I did not find that, uh, that that kind of, uh, not really dichotomy, but different style was as pronounced in when my church is in the South. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, my preaching voice has always felt very natural when I was in Texas. Um, it felt very natural when I was in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Part of that was because I had 50 retired clergy as a part of that congregation oh and seminary professors. So it was extremely biblically literate, okay. theologically sophisticated. So you could just make allusions to stories and they're right with you. You could jump right in. Yeah. You could, yeah. Um, I found here in Chicago that there is that shift for folks. And, um, you know, a Fourth Presbyterian Church has such a rich history of really excellent preaching and John Buchanan was there for 25 or so years and uh, and so my preaching voice is distinctively different from his even though I would say we end up at the same theological place yeah but um, it has been jarring to some of my folks to um, to experience my preaching that does start very closely with the text and works its way out and does it I bring in other sources but not explicitly typically yeah so that becomes a part of the footnotes you know that that informs what happens in the preaching moment but it's not I'm not usually as explicit about it so that has been I think a hard shift for some of my folks Otis Moss challenges the notion that African people have been converted to Christianity as if they had nothing in theological content and experience of God before Christianity arrived in their lives and aren't contributing directly to the religion themselves. 
So rather than simply being converts to, Otis wants to take a look at how the African experience is a producer of Christian theological content. There is a proclivity for us to view people of African descent as converts to and not creators of. Um, and that there is a theological narrative that comes out of Africanity and a theological narrative that is deeply within the ancient Christian tradition that is African, uh, number one. Number two is the view within uh, the African-American community is collective, village, connection, community, where within uh, an evangelical perspective, you talk about Jesus being the personal savior. And that's not heavy language in the black church. My personal savior, because personal savior says you're disconnected from the village. It means that I can be saved and whatever happens to you is fine. Um, where this idea of collective growth, development, and salvation is, is a part. Uh, the other piece is that God is uh, flowing and moving uh, and mysterious in operation and cannot be contained through vocabulary. And, and, and that then becomes a part. So the action of how one demonstrates connection to God is not uh, demarcated by Sunday worship. It's, you know, from washing dishes to you know, interacting with your children. It is, it's everything. It's completely integrated. That there is no sacred and secular separation within uh, the, the, the African framing of, 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 of faith. Um, and that God speaks very clearly to those who have their backs against the wall. Uh, those are kind of three, you know, important elements. Let's sit with the third for a moment. God speaks very clearly to those who have their backs against the wall. To look at the African-American church experience as a conversion to this European model of Protestantism takes on its own flavor in America, sure, but it's more or less going to be consumed by this larger whole. It's more than just to disrespect or discount what's happening, but it's also to silence the voice of God, right? I mean, that's from James Cone, that God is present at the margin in that suffering. I was wondering about, well, in that sermon, you move then to talk about the forgiveness that the family of the victims of that shooting evidence, those family members in court. And you talked about Chris Matthews, and I didn't see him on television. I didn't see what you were responding to, but you said that he expressed not disbelief, but it's just a sort of confusion. He was bewildered. Complete confusion. It was complete. He's the most Christian people I've ever seen. Complete, utter confusion. And then other people were trying to do this analysis. Oh, the forgiveness is too quick. And, and people didn't recognize the collective nature of this. Said, so what I'm doing is I work through forgiveness. Uh, and this is collect. I refuse, and this is very much out of uh, a black theological narrative. I refuse to allow you to define my humanity. And that's really what they were saying. So forgive what I, the reason I say forgive is because I cannot carry the weight of your hate. Now, and as one stated said that I'm, 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 I'm a work in progress as one of the family members stated. And they were basically saying that I refuse to allow you to make me, um, 
a victim at a different level. You know, I, I don't want you to continue to brutalize me. And, and that's what they were saying. They're saying that within our tradition, that forgiveness is not about the other person. It's about me. It's about me saying that I'm not going to give you that much power. And, and, and people miss that. They think that it's, it's a uh, kneeling down and submitting to someone else when in actuality it says it's a very powerful uh, and brave and courageous thing to say, I refuse to allow you to have authority in my life. If you've listened to Preachers on Preaching, you know that I've got uh, beef with traditional call narrative stories, the way that preachers talk about their sense of call. I think it's oftentimes romanticized and portrayed as being a far rosier experience than it often can be. I asked T. Gatewood about his experience of call, and his story lined up perfectly with some of my assumptions. Um, the question I want to ask is this. Do you think that one's call, your call, do you think that your call came cleanly or sideways or in ways that a secular psychotherapist might describe that look quite different from whatever you told your ordination board? Well, my call story starts with disappointment. Uh, um, I got a master's in New Testament, a PhD in theology. You don't do that to go preach in a rural pulpit. Um, and part of the way God called me was the disappointment of, you know, going on the academic market and not getting a job. Uh, and that coinciding with kind of the insistence with two of the people that I was studying with that I was already a pastor. Um, I, had, I had two guys who were, who had served in a church, who were, you know, pursuing doctoral studies, you know, who kept looking at me and going, it's, it's not a question of if you're a pastor, you already are a pastor. Uh, and me going, no, 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 I'm a teacher. You know, I want to be a teacher. Uh, and then finally, you know, through the disappointment uh, of kind of recognizing both in the degree process and then in going onto the market that I just wasn't that gifted academically. Um, so, sure. I mean, it, it, in part, it is a story of disappointment. And then, you know, out of that, finding a, a deep joy of, no, I really was, you know, created for this and, and called into it. And um, the best of who I am is being offered up in it. But the beginning didn't feel that way. Um, Leslie Callahan is the first woman pastor in a church that's over 125 years old. Here she reflects on that experience. I was awed by actually being called to a church. Mm. Because it happens in the tradition. It's happening more often now for women, but it still happens pretty infrequently. St. Paul's is a Baptist church. It is a Baptist church, yes. So you had this sense of call as a little girl. You would come home from revivals and, and, and re-preach the sermons that you'd heard. You carry it with you right into your college experience. I mean, it sounds like this lifelong sure. call residing in your heart. Yet even up to that point, after you've put all this work in, there's a sense of like 
I don't know, a sense of like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like what I hear you saying is like just deep gratitude, right? For that call finally being acknowledged by a congregation. That I absolutely 100% still feel Mm. because I am aware. I'm aware of the, this reality and I know personally many very, very gifted women who never get a chance. Yeah. Yeah. I know people who died never having gotten a chance. Mm. So I did not take for granted that the fact that I had a sense of call, that I had gifts for ministry and even recognized gifts as a preacher, that that would mean that a door to pastoral ministry would ever open. Mm. You know, I, can tell you, I, I, I would go to churches to preach. And while I'd be sitting there, these would be churches that didn't have pastors. While I'd be sitting there, people would say, oh, we want to make sure we have you back next year for this Women's Day, this event, whatever it was. But nobody thought to say, why don't you apply to be our regular preacher? Never occurred to them. They knew they wanted to hear me again. They expressed that they wanted to hear me again. But it never crossed their mind this person could be our pastor. That a pastor can look like that. Donna Scopper has this terrific story about the pain in her own childhood and how a childhood pastor helped save her from it and determined and affected and shaped her understanding that she carries with her to this day of what ministry ought to look like. I've discovered that many people have difficult childhoods. I always thought it was just me, right? Uh, But many, many, many people have difficult childhoods. And mine was um, poor, uh, involved domestic violence, you know, the works, the the usual pattern uh, of people who were uh, uneducated and uh, not likely to get educated. Um, so the pastor saved me over and over and over stern you know you stop beating her now Donald that's it and he would for three days and then go Mm. back to it so your childhood pastor was I'm drawing a connection between that hard story and the story of the couple in your church absolutely your childhood pastor was interventionist. Interventionist. And you've... I felt pro- I felt protected by God. Mm. And I didn't know until much later, developmentally, that lots of people never got that protection. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I literally dedicated my life at age six to keeping little girls safe. Wow. And started baptizing my dolls and giving them communion and telling everybody I was going to be a pastor. And in the Missouri Synod. Right. In, right. I mean, when right. would this have been? In the 50s. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they all just patronized me, and I didn't even know it. Yes, dear. Mm. Of course, dear. And as I've told you, there was kind of an accident involved in my going to seminary. Because by then, I'd figured out that the Lutherans didn't ordain women. Yeah. And... Uh, and, and that coincided with the 60s activism and then the 70s feminism. And I said, oh, yes, they do. 
Mm. They're going to ordain women. It's just a question of time. Yeah. And I put on my battle gown and went to war. In the Missouri Senate? In or the LCA. In the LCA. Okay. Um, so were you ordained in the LCA? No. No. I was the first woman of one of three who were ready the year before they voted it. Wow. Um, and uh, somewhere in the world there's a picture of we three on the um, front page of the Minneapolis uh, paper saying we're ready. And the church voted no that year. It voted yes the next synod. But by then I had jumped ship. Okay. I was, as you might imagine, broken-hearted yeah. because I believed in this church. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I really believed in it. In my conversation with Trey Hall, he reflected on how his involvement with Alcoholics Anonymous has affected his preaching. In your ministry to people coming out of 12-step programs and discovering God in their own recovery, you mentioned in one of the sermons I listened to, I thought you mentioned your own experience in recovery. That's you right. alluded to it? Is that... Yes, yeah, right. I'm, um, a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. How does that affect your preaching? Um, it, it makes me feel uh, a lot better about not having it all together. Uh... I feel less, I mean, I still feel extremely responsible for what I say, obviously, but um, AA is really big on surrender to God. And I, I, I feel like that's obviously most Christians would say that. Like Christians are big on surrendering to God's will, right? The whole Lord's Prayer thing. But I never learned to practice that, really. I mean, I, I learned to practice it. I, I could talk about it theologically, but I, I didn't have an exp- What does it feel like to surrender yourself to God? And so... In the preaching moment, um, I mean, I have my work to do, but at, at the end of the day, if I show up faithfully and surrender, then God will God will take care of God's God's part of that, right? So has it allowed you to enter the pulpit with less trepidation? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I mean, when I first started preaching, I would throw up every Sunday morning. Really? Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Like not meta- the, not metaphorically. Not metaphorically, and not probably not every Sunday morning. But and then over time, that became just a sort of a stomach ache, and you know. But I still have a every Sunday morning. I still have a there's a a, a little uneasiness, which I I used to think was sort of an anxiety disorder, and um, but now I, I in, in my current experience of it, it feels more like a, a reminder. Uh, that I'm not in charge. Uh, that, that that something holy could happen. Uh, it might. It might. It might not. And that that it happens or not is not dependent on whether how good I am or how effective I am. Though God's able to use whatever I try. You know. So like, it's just a reminder of again my smallness, um, but connectedness to God. Many people hope to make their preaching poetic. The poet. Christian Wyman in my conversation talked about how preachers can actually use poems more effectively in the pulpit. And there are ways of doing this. I mean, there are, there are ways of introducing poetry where it's uh, where it would be alienating. If you're going to introduce some high modernist thing like the wasteland into your sermon, I mean, you're going to that's going to cause a problem, you know. 
But then there are poems. I mean, I, I preached yesterday in Rockefeller Chapel down at University of Chicago, and I used this little poem by Anna Kamienska, a Polish poet. And Kamienska was a... She converted in her 30s and when her husband died and converted to Catholicism and had a very devoted, tormented relationship with God throughout the rest of her life, mostly detailed in her diaries, but in her poems too. And my favorite poem is this one. It's called A Prayer That Will Be Answered. Lord, let me suffer much and then die. Let me walk through silence and leave nothing behind, not even fear. Make the world continue. Let the ocean kiss the sand just as before. Let the grass stay green so that the frogs can hide in it, so that someone can bury his face in it and sob out his love. Make the day rise brightly as if there were no more pain, and let my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. Now that's an uncanny poem. What I did is put it in the bulletin, first of all, so that they had it, and, and somebody actually read it at the beginning of the service. They had it in their heads even before the sermon came up there, but they didn't say a word about it. I'm sure people were quite puzzled by the end. It's an uncanny poem. In a way, it gives God all power and no power. Uh, you know, Make the world continue, and God is, is responsible for making the world continue, and, and then no power. Well, it was going to continue anyway. You know, make... Let me suffer much and then die. Well, that's probably going to happen, you know. There's but, a defeatist. There's a defeatist air to it, even at the same time that it's doxological and full of praise, right? Well, that's the yeah. That's the real paradox. And what I find so piercing about the poem is you get to the end. That's the one thing that I mean. You think you're reading a sort of ironic poem all the way through. You know, let the day that I the day after I die be exactly like the day that I die, as it's going to be. Uh, and and then she says, and make my poem stand clear as a window pane bumped by a bumblebee's head. Well, then that's a real request. That's a little supernatural request that she's made. And then if you think back to the poem that you've just read, it is about as clear a poem as you'll ever read. There's not a difficult word in there. There's not. I mean, anyone could understand that poem right up to the right up to the end. Yeah. And and then you think, gosh, it, it's as if what she's done is. She's made an, that prayer has been answered. He's given God has given her a poem as clear as a window pane. And what you feel suddenly is that pure materialism that she has created, that world in which nothing changes. There's no hope. A little ripple of spirit goes through it, and it's uncanny. And and so I think that's like a poem like that fits into a worship service very easily. I used it to talk about uh, the kinds of prayers that you could ask. You know. Is it appropriate to pray for your life if you're dying? Is it appropriate to pay for your child if they're sick? Is it appropriate to pay for a parking space? Is it appropriate? You know, what is it appropriate to pray for? And this was one poem that I used as an example. Did you answer those questions? I answered every one of them. <laughs> what were you doing? <laughs> Rabbi Lizzie Hademan talks about how she changed her approach and her style in the pulpit moving from dialogical sermons that were really sort of focused and guided conversations with a congregation toward a more traditional model of proclamation and simply holding forth as a lead voice. Yeah. In four short years, have any traditions become ossified? Are you already finding we've always done it that way? Yes, for sure. Um, that it, makes me feel good. Oh my gosh. So... 
You know, it's funny because you asked me to be on a podcast about preaching, and I thought, you know, I don't do so much preaching. I don't really think about my role in services as preaching. I think about my role as being a prayer leader and being a teacher. That's sort of the most literal definition of rabbi is just teacher. Um, And I, I feel like I could count the number of sermons I've given definitely on two hands over the last four years. Um, And I used to pride myself a lot and pride the community on that on a Friday night when we gather, instead of the rabbi standing up and, you know, laying down the truth and telling people, you know, what to think and, you know, how to be Jewish, that what I would do is present text, present some text, usually from the weekly Torah portion or from a piece of Talmud that connects to the weekly Torah portion. I would work really hard to find a good, juicy text that I would put in a little study sheet. We make, you know, a little folded folded pamphlet um, and hand that out. And then in the middle of services, kind of break from the energy of um, the sort of the meditative, musical, prayer energy and enter a more analytical, thoughtful space about whatever subject matter is popping out from the text. And would you do that extemporaneously or would you have remarks prepared or would the or are you talking about the community themselves doing like a Commun- community doing a community doing a kind of learning together. Sometimes I would sometimes I would sort of introduce it and then we would do, you know, 150 people, 200 people sort of like all learning together as a group, you know, which sometimes makes it like hard to hear people who are raising their hands and standing at one end for somebody at the other end of the room to hear. Um, oftentimes, just because not everybody knows everybody, or even if you do know the person sitting next to you, um, there's something really special about turn to the person next to you, learn this text, and what what about it bothers you, moves you, jumps out at you? What's a problem here? What do you want to know? And then coming back together and parsing it out. And then usually, yes, I would have some kind of, like the takeaway that I had before I started this conversation. Quite often, the conversation would make me realize my takeaway was not nearly as good as what Rebecca said or what Ricky said, you know, and so then I want to, and then, and then I'll, you know, that sort of gets incorporated. And I usually will say, I want to be really clear here. I think all of your ideas are equal, if not better, to, to what I was thinking. But here's what I was thinking, you know, and then that's just by way of wrapping up so that we can end services and go to dinner. Um, so I used to think that we're going to do that. We're always going to do that because it's so holy. It's so wonderful for people to be able to study together. Nobody studies anymore in the way that, you know, you studied in college or that, you know, if you go to yeshiva, you know, some yeshiva, a place to learn Jewish text. You know, you just you learn for the love of learning. You sit there with a text with someone across from you. This is sort of the the Jewish learning technology is dialogical. You know, it has to involve conversation with another and pulling out the meaning of the text, at least through the lens of one other person you're reading with. I used to think like, yes, this is what services need. You know, services are boring for people because they're passive. They're, you know, you sit there and, you know, you get preached at. And so this is the way of the future. I'm not so sure anymore. Really? (laughs) No, that's the thing you say is something ossified. I yeah, I think sometimes now I mean, I've heard this from a lot of people. Please don't make me don't don't make me don't don't make me like turn back my don't don't make me turn my brain back on. Just you know, I just want to hear what you think about this. I, Do you, you know? think that that's <laughs> that's great? I mean, I love what I want to go back to your old way.
And finally, here's Jim Wallace from Sojourners, remembering the time that he preached at the Davos Economic Forum to some of the world's most powerful people. And in that memory, Jim talks about the fact that we need to not go left or go right from the pulpit in political terms, but instead that what we ought to do is go deeper. But somehow it's got to go deeper. I always say don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. What does that mean to go deeper here? And so I want, uh, you know, and this has to happen at every level. I remember I was giving the closing remarks of all places at Davos, the World Economic Forum, the year before last. I was surprised I was giving the closing remarks. It was almost a sermon. They said, you can just preach. And I said, um, we have talked about the excluded in this meeting. Bill Gates has been here. Bono's been here. But you know, look around, look at each other. This is the most included room on the planet. This room is the most included. The Pope had written a letter to the CEOs read the first night that said wealth should serve humanity and not rule it. Mm. So I had that clerical first night and I and I ended as a clergy person. You know, never in a Davos where there was clergy bookends at both, both ends. And I said, so here's the motto on the wall. It said, the World Economic Forum, our mission, uh, committed to improving, improving the state of the world. So we're going to have some music now because they gave me this cello to take and do an original composition. And, and I said, and I... She was going to do it after mine, and I said, let's do it together. I said, listen to the music and ask yourself what you're going to change when you go home. It's going to cost you something Mm. to improve the state of the world. But you put it back on. It's interesting. It kind of loops back to your experience as a six-year-old in the front of the sanctuary, right? The end is different, but that, that personal confrontation is is similar. Of mine in the audience said, these are, these are the CEOs around the world. He said, they all stopped talking. Mm-hmm. No one left. Nobody came in. And Jim, they bowed their heads <laughs> while the music was going on. And at the party afterwards, I had several coming up just in tears. Where if I just railed against a position, it had been an intellectual argument. And they would have, they wouldn't have even listened. Yeah. yeah. But so... This is about a God who wants relationship with us. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.